there is a mission out there that is bigger than us. At some point, if you're going to serve others in any way, you have to give up a little bit of who you are. It's not only about your self-definition and that being the end all. And I think it's important, but I don't think is, at least in my case, what has driven me through my life. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Today we have a fascinating conversation with Dr. Raul Perea Henze who is a global health physician, government official, and corporate executive who served most recently as deputy mayor for health and human services for the city of New York, where he was responsible for the citywide response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Previously, he was confirmed by the Senate as the eighth assistant secretary for policy and planning at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs from 2010 to 2013. He was the principal advisor to the secretary on veteran policy and strategy, transformation, and interagency collaborations with the Department of Defense, Health and Human Services, and the White House. Raul has also been committed to supporting philanthropic causes, volunteering over 30 nonprofit boards and health, mental health, AIDS, and Latino affairs over the past three decades. Currently, he serves as a member of the advisory board to the Comptroller General of the United States. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome, everybody, to our podcast. Really excited and honored to have Raul with us today. Eric, happy week of Thanksgiving. Hope you're doing well, everybody. And today's conversation is going to kind of meander through a bunch of really important territory uh, as it pertains to everything from veterans to COVID to how we're surviving in this particular moment and how we can stay healthy and happy um, so I'm really excited. Uh, Eric, you're about to head out climbing today, uh, but you weren't feeling well. Is that right? Yeah, I'm glad we're talking to uh, Dr. Raul Peria Hens today because, um, yeah, I'm heading out climbing after the podcast and I woke up with the sniffles and it's like, what to do? You know, like, man, I would feel so guilty passing on COVID. I mean, I'm 99% sure it's just a head cold, but it's like, to, you know, if I ever did pass COVID on to like a good friend, I'd feel terrible, unforgivable, you know, so I just called and canceled Dave. And it's not an excuse just to sit on the couch all day. I'll find <laughs> something else to do. Well, I love that you started there because I mean, Raul is a doctor and has been focusing on uh, COVID uh, in New York City. And I mean, Raul, I think that this thing, I mean, I love that we started in this very practical space for what a lot of us are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, these individual choices of, geez, I have the sniffles and I don't want to put anyone at risk, but I also want to be active and live a healthy life. And 
Can you give us some guidance? Uh, yeah. We'll start there on how to how to navigate that terrain. Yeah, and you're right, Dave. That was painful canceling because you know how much I love being out in the sunshine climbing. Yeah, and we have these two beautiful days where it's going to be in the 60s, and then it's going to start snowing on Friday. So right, great. <laughs> I don't I don't even know where to begin. But no, uh, truly, Eric, as I was telling you before, it's um, it's so personal. Number one. And obviously, like you, most of us would not want to uh, expose one of our loved ones, friends or family inadvertently, right? So, you know, let me just tell you, you know, let me back up a little bit. I, I spent the last year in New York as deputy mayor for health and human services, yes. thinking that my biggest challenge was going to be homelessness, mm -hmm. particularly everything I learned when I worked at the VA on um, veteran homeless uh, issues. And soon enough, COVID was in, in our hands in January when we began to hear things coming from China. And in, I think the biggest issue, and it's interesting that you two are bringing it up months later, we still don't know enough. And in January, we knew very little. What we knew was more related to all viral infections. Basic precautions, still number one, wash your hands, wear your mask, try to be outdoors, and most importantly, you know, keep as healthy as possible. Yeah, I think it was partly, my decision was an, a bit of an emotional response because I have a friend who's a ER physician out in the Eastern Plain of Colorado and he got COVID. He was in his 60s and I think he was relatively fit. And he was in the ER for nine, the uh, critical care for nine days, nine days. <laughs> so he yeah. he kind of put the fear of God into me yesterday. And I think uh, we're getting to the point in which every one of us in this country knows sadly someone who's been, you know, who's tested positive and some of us have seen the horrors of seeing people die in New York. You know, I don't need to recount the experience, but, you know, I was in charge of all the public hospitals. Right. And uh, we saw people die in 24 hours. Right. And, and again, you know, when we looked at the associated factors, the comorbidities, the one that came out as the most dangerous one was obesity. Mm. Uh, because obesity brings along you know, heart disease and diabetes, bad habits, no exercise. And some of those people sadly, you know, just went very fast. You know, at the beginning, we also thought it was the elderly. You know, once we started walking by March or April, we realized it wasn't the elderly only because they were older and immunocompromised, but it was because they could have all of these other you know, uh, conditions, particularly heart disease and diabetes. Right. Now, so Mayor de Blasio brought you in to be the deputy mayor of health and human services in New York City. Like, where do you start? <laughs> I'm really fascinated. Like, it's such an overwhelming problem. My brain would just, I, I think about the, you know, the COVID and the beginning and all the things that you don't know. And then I just think, wow, I would just be so incredibly overwhelmed. But that's partly because I'm not a doctor and I don't have a degree. Well, you know, I, I think that um, I suppose uh, 
opposites attract, right? I, I'm fascinated by your ability to go climb mountains that I would never dream to do. And <laughs> in, in your ability to zoom inside your energy and concentration in a way that imagine the same kind of skill, but the other way around. You know, my my I think my job is to extrapolate, you know, we have one case of this, and then all of a sudden, how do we discover early on if we're gonna have other cases and how do we nip it in the butt? As this evolve, like in all pandemics, usually they start by being epidemics. The yearly flu we have is a very classical example. No, we just don't pay attention anymore. We know that it kills a lot of people, but we just don't pay attention. And I think this one was, you know, spreading all over the world so fast with no knowledge that we didn't even have the ability to do what we did with H1N1 or Ebola, contain it, understand it quickly, put all our guns in one place and contain it. And without this being a political statement, I think that there was a lot of confusion from lack of guidance from the WHO, from CDC, from the federal government, and in many cases, the state government. So I think all localities ended up kind of making their own rules as they went. And we ended up learning from each other, sadly, we lost a lot of people that we should not have if we would have had a more organized and concentrated response. And I think that that's something that should be very clear in our heads. And because you were in New York City and you were in the you know midst of the crisis, you were one of the leaders probably, because as you said, you weren't getting a lot of support and information from the federal government. So you, you probably were right in the middle of trying to create all the policies and make the hard decisions for yourself, for the city. We, we, we saw first, let's put it that way, the West Coast and New York saw first that the cases, the number of cases just exploded in our hands. Mm-hmm. And uh, we very quickly follow normal public health principles, which is at the beginning, you try to identify every case and then track their contacts. You get to a certain tipping point in which you cannot do that anymore, and you just protect all your healthcare infrastructure, your healthcare workers, your hospitals, all elective surgery in 40 hospitals in New York City stopped, and we prepare all the hospitals to just take COVID patients almost 100%. All the other emergencies happened, but it was a citywide effort. And yes, sadly, we did it in the absence of the the you know science being there and the leadership at different levels telling us, okay, we are with you. We're eventually, you know, we're going to send the military. Critical. If we did not get the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense sending us, you know, the comfort and um, a lot of troops to uh, take care of all the uh, temporary hospitals and morgues, the city would have gone under. And I think that that's what uh, what you don't want. 
imagine Eric when you're climbing and you have this ability to perceive and know by instinct where you shouldn't put your foot. You know, as a public health professional, that's the same feeling through experience is like, if I have 10 more cases in this particular location, it's gonna get out of hand. So to raise your flags to the leaders of the city, the mayor, the governor, the president, saying this is what science is showing us. In, in, in a very interesting way, we ended up working with hedge fund you know, managers who reach out to us saying, we do modeling, we do projections, we can show you, you know, exhaust data of where people are, where the activity of the people is, and that way we can track where the epidemic is expanding or contracting. It was a, it was a, a very interesting team effort. Yeah, and Raul, like I'm, I'm curious from a, like on a personal standpoint, that seems at some points it must be completely overwhelming. You know, and you've worked on these big national, in this case, global issues, you know, veteran PTSD, veteran suicides, and, you know, the mental health issues that are facing veterans. And then you've got this major thing that you went in thinking your job was going to be one thing. And now you're dealing with a mass pandemic that nobody knows what to do. Like, how do you manage the, there must be really tough moments there where you're, you're seeing thousands of people dying and you're not sure what the solution is. And yet you have to feel confident that you can lead us forward in a pathway that is positive. So how do you do that as a leader? I think two major factors. One is you have to have good people. I was absolutely blessed to have people reporting to me the CEO of the public hospital system, the health commissioner, the commissioner for social services. We distributed about a hundred million meals to seniors and children. I could not have done that if I did not have, you know, the right senior leaders who, you know, managed their agencies to cover the entire almost 9 million New Yorkers, right? And I think that again, in the absence of leadership coming from up top, you kind of, number one, rely on your people. And number two, you learn how to pace yourself and your people. And um, I, I remember the time in which I was at VA and twice a year we will have, you know, continuity of operations exercises. You know, these are the exercises that are very codified the federal government has for what is called the presidential succession in case of a catastrophe. So when we say the federal government didn't know what to do, that's not necessarily true. There are protocols in place in case of something like this happening. They just did not activate them, right? And, and so I think that whether it's a national security risk, you know, and this comes from my veteran days or whether it's a pandemic, what we saw in New York, what we're seeing right now, from my perspective, is the closest that I will ever be in a conflict situation, much like Iraq, right? I think what is more distressing for me was in New York and continues to be here in Washington is to see the city boarded up and people afraid for their safety 
and the economy in shambles. And in New York, we had almost 2 million unemployed in three months. It was just a tsunami. And I think that um, we really need to come together as a country. There's, again, no political statement. It's just fact. I'm speaking as a public health physician. We need everyone to do their part to make sure that we all come through out of this. As a public health expert, was that a surprise? I mean, because I have to say, like, you know, I feel like I'm a pretty smart person. And and somebody was like, I think we're going to go into quarantine. And I'm like, no way. I don't think it's going to happen. You know, and I just I get maybe I was in denial. So was it a surprise to you? as an expert or were you thinking this is something that could happen in America and was it an easy decision to 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 make some of those hard decisions because you're like hey that's you know the science backs up what we need to do or was it was it a torturous decision it's a, that's a very uh, very astute question Eric in my career I have often found that you always want to have as much information as you can in order to make decisions. And never have I had all the information I needed or I thought I needed to make decisions. And so at some point, you just have to pull the trigger and be able to understand the risks and how to handle risks if they appear. So that's one side. So decisions are not easy, never easy. And in this case, we're even more difficult. But at some point, you have to make a decision. And I think the one thing that was so different for me this time around was that I we were literally going 24-7 with the mayor and the senior team. And I learned what it was like to shut down the entire economy of a, the major, the largest city in the country, industry by industry, you know? First it was non-essential, and then it was the restaurants. And then at the very end, with a lot of pain, were the schools. And we knew that at least for New York City, schools are the nerve center of all activity, not because of only the kids, but the parents. There is 1.1 million kids in the public health school system in New York City. More than 150,000 live in shelters and go from shelters to school. And the only meals they get are those meals they get at school. So we needed to create a whole system of come and pick up your meal because otherwise those kids will be completely starving. But the, the second part to your question, Eric, is it's um, humbling to kind of understand in your gut, you know, that you're leaving, your decisions can leave someone with no job or stranded with no help. And at the same time, you're forced to do that and to do that in the absence of complete science that tells you exactly that you're right, I think is also unethical. It brings up your 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 ethical frames and that's when you realize, I think, <laughs> what people are made of uh, when you try to say is, hey, is it only me or is it, you know, everyone around me? 
and sorry for the long answer, but the last thing, Eric, is I was born and raised in Mexico. And I think when you have an experience of what could happen in developing countries, you know that things can happen. I think we in our country don't believe it can happen to us. Mm -hmm. and, and you alluded to that. You were not the only one who was in denial. I was in denial. Right. We were all thinking we're not all these other countries are a mess, but we're not get, ever going to get there. And so you have to, at some point, believe that it could happen here and without being alarmist, right? The conditions that that are created by this or any pandemic, shattering the economy, creating much bigger differences between the privileged and the people who are completely, you know, at the other end, in other countries can create and have created revolutions, right? Unrest minimum. And that's what's happening now. You know, it's like, I, I could have told, if we would have had this interview in April or May, I was already looking ahead of what is the consequence when we're coming out and people are beginning to look at the rest of life and all of a sudden exactly what happened, you know, riots, uh, the, the differences of our country instead of, instead of getting us together to say, boy, we just had an earthquake, you know, how do we help each other? No, everybody kind of went to their corner. And I think that that is what is most dangerous for our country right now. Yeah, when you're backed up against the wall and you're stressed out, you know, that's when, yeah, crazy things happen. You know, you know, I have a connection with Nepal from all the mountains that I've climbed in the Himalaya and um, where they put Kathmandu into lockdown, you know, it's different. It's more dramatic, I think, than America because there's so many people who are just on the edge of hunger and correct. You know, so you lock people down and you put them in their houses. Well, some of them don't have houses, but some of them, if you put them in their house, they have no way to make an income and they're starving to death in their house. And so every action has a reaction. So when New York went into quarantine, you must have had to really go into work now, like thinking, okay, how do I, how do we solve all the reactions that are going to take place as a result of, of this decision? Like with, you know, the vets who are already feeling isolated. And as you said, kids who um, are, are, are food deprived and so forth. We also got a reminder of how connected we are to each other. Right. Particularly in New York, there, there is nothing you can do. You can live on Park Avenue or you can live in the Bronx. Right. You are connected. Yeah. And so you have a choice. You either, you know, come in and try to help one another or you just, you know, say this is not my problem mm -hmm. and you kind of go to a corner. Yeah. The interesting thing is that even if you try to go to a corner, you're still not going to be an island all to yourself. And so I, I, I had vivid memories of all my work with veterans and how particularly the work that you do, David, it helps because others rally to help, you know, one person that is, you know, going through a new adaptation for a disability or for a challenge. 
right? And and I I thought, you know, you build resilience. And I sadly saw that the majority of Americans may not necessarily know or practice, you know, resilience. And I think for the foreseeable future, part of the remedy that I see is uh, resilience type of programs like the ones that Barriers has will be very beneficial. As you and I corresponded, David, yes. you know, it is it, work for veterans, but that doesn't mean that it could not work for other groups. I would not offer it to a city. I would offer it to specific groups, right? To children, to uh, people in different industries. And um, more importantly is, is really how do you help others by also building your internal strength mm -hmm. on how to overcome adversity? And Eric, you are a great example of that. Mm -hmm. In fact, probably most people don't even think of you as having any limitations. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that those kinds of examples are missing right now. We're getting lost in, sadly, the political moment. Very important, historic but I think we're forgetting the humanity in all of this. And Raul, you mentioned the veteran work that we do and that you've done. Um, we've been very concerned about the the veterans that we we serve because we know that they are prone to isolation and uh, suicidal tendencies and uh, already have a lot of mental health issues. And so we've been very concerned about how in these times we can support them and support their ability to build community and to build their resilience uh, and their mental health. Can you talk to us about what you know of the, from your, your work uh, as it relates to the veteran community and how we might be able to support them in, in this particular time? Looking at the silver linings, and we always should look for, you know, what is the positive side of any catastrophe? Um, all of this has actually brought us together in a virtual way in which now people can visit and be with one another that way. Is mm -hmm. that perfect? No. Does that substitute the human touch? Never, from my perspective as a doctor. Can we adjust in the coming months and years to be connected through apps or, you know, uh, this type of media with people who are at risk, particularly veterans who in isolation tend to go the wrong way, right? Um, I'm still uh, very connected with a program that helps veterans with uh, substance use disorder. And that model has a meditation component, the medication. And the, the trick of that is that it's a one-stop shop. You bring all the services to the veteran. And I think that what I know about what you do with Barriers USA is is that kind of a model. You, you, you bring a veteran into a new family, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what people need right now. People need to feel that they're part of a community, even virtual, mm -hmm. that they're part of a family. It may not be their own. And by the way, that's the last thing I will say on this. Another silver lining, I saw so many families forced to spend time together <laughs> now telling me so many times how happy they are 
because they were all able to bunker down and they brought their kids from college and everybody was just at home and they felt safe and helpful to each other. Beautiful stories. And at the same time, there were the other families who probably already had issues to deal with that either were able to resolve them by being forced to be together or they just realized that there's something there that they just couldn't resolve. And so I, I think that we've never been forced <laughs> in America to actually quarantine this way since 1918, you know, the Spanish flu. And so this is a whole new, in my mind, our life will never be the same. We are into the history will be written with, you know, the pre-COVID way of doing things in America and the and the and the way things are going to be after this. And I do hope that hugs come back. I do, I do hope that gatherings with family and friends come back. I hope that bigger gatherings come back, but I think that they should happen at the right time. Vaccine, all of that. And I hope that we keep this considerations for our fellow, you know, Americans and and wear the mask even longer than needed and be more considerate and washing our hands and clean surfaces when we use. Right now it's just about adapting. And right. I think if nothing else, um, I am fully confident of, if not the resilience, the persistence, the stubbornness and the adaptability of our country, truly, yeah. will be, we'll be okay. I agree. Yeah. Raul, I'd love to get your advice for, you know, I, I think in your case, the story you told about what you went through in New York City and the 24-7 work to just try to solve constantly every problem that was coming your way. I think on a smaller scale, many of our listeners have dealt with that, whether they've lost their job or they've had to cut, you know, positions at their businesses. I think a lot of us have gone through these ebbs and flows of 24-7 trying to figure things out in our own lives um, and manage the ever-changing landscape. How do you recommend people take care of themselves, their own personal health in the midst of all this kind of really intense things that are happening to us? Uh, David, I think that's, I guess, probably the biggest challenge we all have as individuals and members of families, right? First of all, I think for those who have lost jobs or loved ones, I think, number one, my heart goes to them because it's, it's not of their own doing. At the end of the day, I'm speaking as a physician. And so I think this may be a reminder that we all have to take care of ourselves, trying to, again, eat well, have good hygiene, and try to actually protect our physical presence as much as our mental um, you know, resilience. So I think meditation, even in the form of prayer, in some cases for people who believe in a certain you know, belief, um, really need to internalize that resilience. You know, the, there are three areas in mental health that we often refer to as the three pillars of someone's well-being. You know, one is family, the other one is 
career and the other one is self. And I think that we all have to figure out how to have one of those three stable at any point in time. Mm. So we use it as a the linchpin, the rock, you know, for when the other two are very mm. fluid. Mm-hmm. So which one can you rely the most on? I will say self. But I think in some cases, when any of us as human beings get a weak moment, you know, your family or your career, you know, internalizing the form of passion, your passion to serve, your passion to have consequence on something meaningful will sustain you. And so a long way of answering your question, David, I I do believe that paying attention to that mix uh, can help all of us kind of get through one of the toughest moments in probably some of our lives. And Ro, what about medical professionals? I mean, because like, you know, I know that there's incredible training that goes on with being a doctor or a nurse or a first responder, but we're all only human. Do you worry about doctors and, and nurses and first responders? I do, and I worry about them daily. We are seeing that a lot of them are reaching a burnout point. And we thought that we would have the ability to give them a break before a resurgence. And you all have seen that, you know, just when they can actually take a little break, then all of a sudden we're all the way up again. There is no question, Eric. I think we're going to see PTSD out of this the same way we're seeing for veterans coming out of multiple deployments, I think it's just the hammering of the same intense feeling. But I can also tell you, you know, in 30 years of my career, I can go back to AIDS and what it was like and what it is now. Even for me, I cannot really watch a movie that relates to AIDS. It's it's just too much of a reminder. And I want to believe that we conquer that and then we are addressing mental health issues. I think 20 years ago, they were so stigmatized that we wouldn't even be able to talk about them. Mm-hmm. And so I have great hopes that indeed this generation is going to be skittish and, and harmed by the memory of COVID, but we're going to put it in the past, like we have conquered other challenges. And I'm fully confident of that. And what... Because you brought up AIDS, now you you were instrumental in you know creating the policies around AIDS and attacking that challenge in New York. Were there a lot of differences or similarities between the AIDS crisis and the COVID crisis? Was was there any overlap? You will find it. I found it fascinating and sad that as we were navigating through the lack of knowledge some of the stigma very much like AIDS started popping up. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, if blacks and Latinos, you know, seem to have more predisposition, I don't want them in my store or I don't want them in my Uber. And, And then I started seeing, you know, signs of discrimination. I started seeing that division that I experienced during the AIDS crisis of 
if you get it, that means that you are tainted and bad and you are not doing the right thing or you almost deserve it like it was in some point at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, right? And, and that, obviously, as a public health professional, that, that worries me because it's, it's, it's there, it's, it's latent in our human behavior. And I think what I want is to promote more the other side of it doesn't matter how you got it, you know, I'm here to help. And, and we're going to figure this out together as a community, as a country. Well, do you mind if, if I ask a more personal question? I've learned that our work and our lives are so intricately connected. Like there's no, a lot of us, there's no way to separate our life and our work. The two impact each other. Uh, so I understand that you are, you are gay and you are also an immigrant. So did, did, does that affect your approach to life, uh, your approach to people, to empathy, to the work that you got into, to the map that you use to navigate your life and, and, and you know, the, the world? I suppose it does. I, I've never thought about it that way. I, I think that it makes me maybe a little bit more tolerant of differences, not only being gay, but an immigrant also because I spent 10 years of my life working for uh, Pfizer and Merck, and I went to 145 countries mm-hmm. doing a lot of work on more research for how doctors can work with patients better. Mm-hmm. It was not so much about product, it was more about the patient-physician relationship. And honestly, I think sometimes I wish Americans of all kinds were more exposed to one another. What unites us is probably bigger than our differences, right? Yes, it is important who you are. Eric, it is important who you are. The fact that you are blind, it defines you in many ways. Yes. But at the end of the day, you know, I think that depending on what we're doing, there is a mission out there that is bigger than us. And I often tell people who are immigrants, Latinos, other gay men who come and ask for mentorship, at some point, if you're going to serve others in any way, you have to give up a little bit of who you are. Mm. It's not only about your self-definition and that being the end all. You know, The whole point is, if you're going to help others, try to understand them and try to learn from them. So it may sound too Pollyannish, but I sometimes think that the diversity we should be looking for is in thinking, in approaches, and for some reason we don't have a label for that yet. (laughs) And when I came into the VA, it was like for me to walk into another country, different language, different, different codes, different way of succeeding or what success was defined, how success was defined. Think about what you do, Eric, you know, I wouldn't even know how to understand the beauty of your world if I don't put myself in your hands when I walk in there and say, Eric, show me why you're so passionate about what you do, right? And it shouldn't be because 
you. <laughs> it shouldn't be because of you're only thinking about yourself. I've read your book. I've seen, I follow what you've done so long with admiration. Same as David and what he has created and continues with Paris USA. I still keep myself for not going to the Antarctica with you and Prince Harry. That's right. I, I, I think that we have forgotten on how to define ourselves through others and our actions on behalf of others. And I think we are promoting more and more self-definition as the end all. And I think it's important, but I don't think is, at least in my case, what has driven me through my life. Well, thank you. That's a great answer. Excellent. Excellent. Very wise, I think. So, well, well, the gray hair is the gray hair. <laughs> we really appreciate Raul your time today and your your wisdom that you've shared with with us and our and our listeners in your lifetime of service. And thank you so much for uh, being a part of our community. Thank you. Thank you both, um, Eric. Good luck. And- thank you. And yeah. keep keep hiking. <laughs> I think it's, it's the best thing, medicine for COVID. Um, honestly, it's just mm-hmm. your state of mind is the most important healing mechanism right. against disease all around. Mm. All around. There is a lot of research on how your mental state, particularly stress, can trigger conditions like cancer or you know, autoimmune diseases. Right. And so, again, I think before you reach for the pills, I think <laughs> you should reach for the hills. Wow. Did you just make that up? <laughs> I, I, I think I just did. That's but, amazing. <laughs> honestly, that that is much better medicine. <laughs> I'm going to have to steal that, Raul. Oh, wow. All right. All yours. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah. Next thing you see, like on social media, it'll be a quote from Eric Weinmayer. Yeah. Yeah. Don't reach for the pills. Yeah. Reach for the hills. Get all over the website. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you both. Yeah, thank really you, you, thank you, Pauline, for uh, all it. edit this. Thanks, Eric. Uh, it's been a great conversation. We really appreciate it. So, Eric, that was a that was an amazing yeah journey he's that a, we went on together. He's a beautiful man. I have to say, he's that's that's God. Good that there's people like that yeah. putting their heart and soul into this kind of work, right? Oh my goodness. But I, I mean, so much of what he said is so powerful. But when I asked him whether being gay or being an immigrant, whether that affects his approach in, to life, I thought his answer was brilliant. I thought that was brilliant. I was really contemplating that as he was talking because, okay, yeah, we all think that our background impacts our work and our approach and how we deal with other people and interact with other people. But I really like what he said about, in a way, at some point, you have to give up a little bit of who you are to be able to really understand others, because it can't be all about you and your traumas or your abilities or your background or your struggles. It has to become about them. You have to be able to step into their world, into their shoes. So I'd never heard somebody express it like that. You know, you have to give up a bit of yourself to really become a fully evolved human being that 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 was powerful to me yeah i really liked what he had to say about how in the midst of great chaos and strife like you you try to have some some mental sanity um and that idea that he expressed of you know you look to family career or self and hope that maybe one of those can be your anchor if the other ones are 
are a mess in the midst of all this going on? And, and how do you create those anchor parts of your life, even though other parts are in chaos was a pretty powerful idea. For sure. Yeah. And of course, head for the hills instead of the pills. The pills. <laughs> yeah, that'll, be, that'll come up several times now in the next few weeks. Uh, that's going to be our new no barriers. Exactly. All our flags. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Dave, thank you so much. No yeah, barriers. Paul, I know it was tough to you know book that. Um, there was a lot of back and forth. So thanks for doing that. I thought he'd be a great guest and he really was. Yeah. He was amazing. Pauline, let's, if we're recording, keep your voice in here. Everyone needs to hear the real person behind the scenes. Totally. The person who makes this all happen and yeah. brings the story. No, keep Pauline in the, in the recording here. Sorry. Uh, great job, guys. Uh, let's hear you say our new slogan, Pauline, for the, to close us out. Reach for the hills before you reach for the pills. Okay, good. Yeah, you're getting there. Let's <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you. Right, so thanks. Bye bye. The production team behind this podcast includes senior producer Pauline Schaefer, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Cotman, graphics by Sam Davis, and marketing support by Megan Lee and Carly Sandsmark. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com.